I think you'll listen better during this session than any other session because people just seem to love arguments and there's nothing like a contradiction or a confusing thing to make people want to hear someone embarrass themselves and um, I think you'll listen. It is not as risky to bear false witness in favor of a brother as it is to bear false witness against him. Do you notice the commandment was worded very one-sidedly? It didn't say thou shalt not bear false witness. It said thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. In other words, if you say that she's a sweet person, you don't have to worry about wondering whether or not it's really deep down true. You can just take a chance and say nice things about people. Where it becomes risky is when you're talking about negative things. Check me on that. All right, uh, we are going to have a prayer and then enter into our last session. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, as I am about to do my best to answer questions that have been raised by critics and searching people, I ask that you would make them plain, the answers, that you would strengthen the influence of anything I say that is true, that you'd weaken the influence of anything I say that is misrepresentative of what is true. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look at your handout if you have one. <clears throat> Down to the last point. You'll see there the statement. That's the statement about the last deception within the Adventist church. It says, the very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. The most prominent, in my opinion, of the anti-Ellen White webpages is ellenwhite.org. And ellenwhite.org has a frequently asked questions section with a bunch of frequently asked questions. If you're ever there, check out question number 31. The question is something like this. Dear ellenwhite.org, how or why do you dare to say these things about Ellen White since you are fulfilling her prediction that people would try to make her testimonies of none effect? That's a sincere question from somebody. Let me tell you how that webpage answers it, and then let me reply. OwenWhite.org says something like this back. Dear Searching One, our critics like to quote this statement. But in 1980, the White Estate released the entire letter. And when you read the next sentence, it puts an entirely different light on the quotation. I don't think I have the next sentence here. Well, the fact of the matter is, I wrote this before I got to that. But um, I'll tell you what it says, the next sentence, roughly. It's, it's speaking about people that claim to have visions. 
people that claim to be able to, to be prophets or to have the same gift that Ellen had, Sister White had. And it speaks about how in that sentence, Satan will use these spurious visions to create a disgust for anything that claims to be a vision. And would this weaken people's confidence in the testimonies of the Spirit? It sure would. And so, in effect, what the ellenwhite.org, white, <laughs> ellenwhite.org website says is, you all are taking Ellen White's statement out of context. When you put it in context, it's speaking not of people like me, but of people that are claiming to have the gift of prophecy, like Ellen White claimed. Now let me re respond to his response. It's true that in 1980, the White Estate released the whole argument, I mean the whole letter. It's not true that that sentence was released in 1980. In fact, it was released in the very same place that this statement is from. Second Selected Messages, page 78. If you would read the very next sentence in Second Selected Messages, it's there. And that was printed in 1958. Besides that, it was printed in my, The Faith I Live By in the same year, 1958. But more than that, in 1980, when the whole letter was released, a sentence was released after that sentence that isn't found in either one of those books. And that sentence goes something like this. It's not here either. It says, And Satan will also work through men who have given up their confidence in the testimonies. And it goes on to describe the very work that ellenwhite.org is doing. But if you'll just look at the statement as it is here, it says Satan will work ingeniously, what are the next three words? In different ways and through different agencies. What I know is that whoever wrote that response on ellenwhite.org had to have read the sentence that was released in 1980 because he knew it was released in 1980. And in quoting that sentence as if it was newly released when it had been out before and neglecting the next sentence and speaking, he was dishonest. And that's a shame. Number two, one way. <clears throat> Maybe I shouldn't even get into this because there's too many issues to cover already from what you all brought up to me. So I'm just going to tell you what it says there. Briefly, there's a quotation on your handout, a prophecy of what Satan would do with music in our church in the end of time. It's one of the most incredible predictions ever made because when it was made, it's not like this was normal fare for religious life in North America, in the Adventist church. Now, it had happened in Iowa, but that movement was squelched, right? And she said it was going to come into our camp meetings just before the close of probation. And it's been happening. Indiana, that's right, thank you. And it has happened. When he said Indiana, he meant when it happened the first time. And when I say it's happening now, that's more than one place. That should just make you think. In an Iowa-Missouri conference pastoral meeting a couple of years ago, 
the issue of music was coming up. One of my friends was there, he's a pastor, and he had read this statement. It was, he didn't know it was going to come up at the meeting, I mean the topic of music. So when the topic came up, he raised his hand and asked about this statement, Second Selected Messages, that said this would happen in camp meetings just before the close of probation. He didn't have the book with him. He couldn't like read it to them, but he had it in his head. Does that ever happen to you? You know, you had the basic idea? And the ministerial director that was there told him, now I'm just taking the word of this guy who was at that meeting, but told him that this was a prophecy of the Pentecostal movement. Well, I just want you to understand that it says our camp meetings. That's the second to the last line here. And you just ought to know that. Because if it was Pentecostal, the Pentecostal movement was going strong when Ellen White was alive on this earth. And it was already there. Except they didn't have the kind of music we have today, but they were doing their best. Going to point three. The nature of inspiration and the number of rooms in the sanitary. Long, long ago in a land far, far away. There was a sanitarium that was built in Paradise Valley, and the name of it was Paradise Valley Sanitarium. I don't know if it was built in Paradise Valley. I just guessed that. Maybe they just called it that for no reason at all. But any, I'm not familiar with California. Anyway, the sanitarium was built in Paradise... Well, it was built in California. And it was called the Paradise Valley Sanitarium. Ballinger was a pastor. One of the, There's a line of three Ballingers. Grandpa father and son and they all have the same spirit and mentality and so you can just call them Ballinger and you have the same idea for any of them Ballinger was a pastor that was over here and she got a hold of a personal letter from Ellen White to someone that mentioned the number of rooms in the sanitarium the fact of the matter was it wasn't accurate now I don't remember what was in the letter, nor what the reality was. But the difference was by four. So suppose that there were 90 rooms and she said there was 86, will be something like that. Only her number was the rounded one, so it would be more like 86 and 90. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was urged by Ballinger as evidence that she couldn't be trusted. And I hear you laughing at that. One way that we've tried to answer this objection, the, the typical way we've done it, is by saying that, oh, that doesn't matter. Who cares about the number of rooms? You know, that's so silly, kind of like this. I'm going to suggest to you that's not the best way to answer it because it gets too much of self in there. Who's to determine which things are not important? And who knows which number 10% is tithed or 11% or... 9%? There's a better way and a more simple way. I'll tell you one thing about the story. Ballinger never published that letter. In fact, though Ellen White admitted that she had written it, and though Ballinger accused her of writing it, <coughs> you could search the world over today and you won't find it. The critics don't have it and the White Estate doesn't have it. There isn't any copy of it around. You know why? Ballinger didn't publish it. Because if he had, everyone would have laughed at him. It wasn't a religious letter. It was a common letter. And prophets also have to write common letters and do common things and talk about common topics. 
And when Elamite responded about that letter, that's just what she said, is that common letters must be written. Common things have to happen. You have to do what you have to do to live in this life, even if you're a prophet. But don't be confused. The inspired and uninspired are not mixed together in some confusing conglomeration. What's written as a testimony is written. <coughs> Ellen might kept copies of her testimonies by that time of her life. She didn't keep copies of the other stuff. <coughs> is there a deacon here that would like to get me a glass of water? No deacons? I'll, I'll make it. All right, I'll take it. Um, <clears throat> look at that hey I have a wife handy thank you dearest I appreciate that that's a great thing just a moment these are dangerous for me because the shape isn't the right shape for my mouth and so sometimes you dribble and then you have this electronic thing right here and it's sort of dangerous but it worked out Okay, Peel came up here during the intermission and brought up a number of objections. Did I get through my points? Yeah. yeah. And I'm just going to go through a bunch of them that are listed here. The first one that was brought up was that Ellen White made a prediction that Great Britain would enter the war, England, on the side of the South. And while that was all that was mentioned, there's a great deal more to it. That Great Britain would enter the war, that the war could not be conducted successfully, that in fact it was impossible to conduct it successfully and if you don't conduct the civil war successfully how many nations do you have when you're done you got two of them well great britain never did enter the war and the war was conducted successfully and we only have one nation and therefore ellen white was a false prophet that's the a summary of the accusation look at that That's very kind of you, sir. I appreciate that. <clears throat> you can find these statements yourself in the first volume of the testimonies. Um, there are three chapters there in the Civil War. I'm going to summarize the answer for you. Ellen White worded that paragraph about the whole thing I just said in a, in a very hypothetical situation way. Kind of like 1 Corinthians 15, 19 I quoted this morning that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The passage doesn't say that we are of all men most miserable, but if there's no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. You follow what I'm saying? What she indicated there is that as long as the northern hierarchy in the United States was willing to let slavery continue, that there's no way that they would be blessed in their efforts to conduct the war and to save the Union. And that's true. You can read about our dear Lincoln. Lincoln was very plain that he did not care to help the condition of the slaves if he could save the Union without doing it. Lincoln made that very plain, and a number of his generals also were of the very same mind. They were not interested in abolishing slavery. In fact, in many abolitionist movements in North America, that is, movements that were saying we should abolish slavery, blacks were not allowed to be members because there was such prejudice even in the North. 
But slightly before Gettysburg, when the battle had gone on much longer than Lincoln expected, Lincoln saw the light that he had not seen before. If you ask, if Lincoln was here and it was resurrected, and you were to ask him, what was your conversion experience? You know he would talk about the Battle of Gettysburg. Lincoln considered that to be a turning point in his life, in his own policy on this issue. The summary is that when Lincoln changed his policy about slavery and said he was going to abolish it, God changed his policy on how to relate to the Northern administration. And what was in Illinois' testimony is that the reason Britain had, had not entered the war is that Britain was afraid that if she did, that she'd be weak and other nations would attack her and take advantage of it and there'd be a general world war. Well, that is what Britain was thinking, and Britain didn't enter the war. And Lincoln did change his policy, and everything worked out fine and dandy. And there actually is not one false prophecy anywhere in that section. It all happened just as it should have happened in view of the fact that Lincoln changed his policy. J-U-P stands for Jupiter. Someone, if you go to these anti-element websites, you can find a statement, even a picture. I saw someone brought it up here, and I saw a picture there about tall men and short men on Jupiter. And you know, that sounds kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? Tall men and short men on Jupiter. Our Jupiter doesn't support life, much less fruit trees. I want to tell you, Ellen White never saw short men or tall men on Jupiter. That picture came from putting together two statements, both of which were misunderstood and twisted, and then twisting the result as much as possible. The first statement came from Ellen White's early ministry when Joseph Bates, the sea captain, was unconvinced that she was a prophet. And in a vision that happened in his presence, she began to describe things that she saw. What she described was the same things that he had seen in studying astronomy, and he had his own telescope. Now, how well would that have worked if, he, if she had described things he couldn't see? Does that make any sense to what I'm saying? It would have been an entirely useless revelation. And it's just standard in the Bible to reveal to us the very things that are helpful, not the things that wouldn't be. That's standard. One of the things that he could see at the telescope of his time was that Jupiter had four moons. Ellen White saw a planet that had four moons. And he said, oh, that's Jupiter. Did Ellen White ever say Jupiter had four moons? No, she just saw a planet that had four moons. Well, Jupiter does have four moons, plus some. And... Um, that's one statement. Nothing happened there except what I would expect from a true prophet, that God would use that vision to establish the faith of Joseph Bates. Did we need Joseph Bates? Man, that man helped us so much. God won him. Now go to another statement later. Ellen White saw a planet out in the universe somewhere where Enoch was visiting. And that planet had four moons. And on that planet, she saw living beings. And they weren't all identical, which was her main point. Aren't you glad? The critic is the one who said that 
because it had four moons, like the planet she'd seen in that other vision, it must be Jupiter. Well, that's just silly. Listen, if there are angels on other planets and beings on our planets, they have to have between zero to six million moons. And the most common numbers are probably going to be zero, one, two, three, four, and five. You follow what I'm saying? It's just not incredible to find that there was one of those planets had four moons. I'm done with that one. <clears throat> this has something like S-L-O-W, but I don't remember what it was about. Does anyone know something about slow? Slaves, that's what that is. That's what that's about. All right, my handwriting is bad when I'm writing on my hand. Um, there have been critics for, of Ellen White from the 1890s to the 1970s because in early writing she saw Christ's second coming. And when Christ came back, she saw that there were slaves that were freed from their masters. And she talked about the pious slave that went to heaven and the master didn't. Have any of you read some of those statements? And the critics were saying, ha, ha, and Ellen White, she thought Christ came back during the time of slavery, and slavery ended in the 1860s. That's a hollow accusation. Have you read National Geographic last year on the issue of slavery? True or false, there are less slaves today than in the 1850s. At least according to the journalism in that particular article, there are more slaves today than ever before in the Earth's history. The critics are all washed up. And even if there weren't, do we know that there's not going to be a revival of slavery? There might very well be. And more than that, Revelation talks about bondmen in the very end. People don't know what they're doing. All right. Turn between your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18. I said turn with me, but also I misplaced my Bible. There it is. All right. Jeremiah 18. <clears throat> We're looking at verse 7. It says, The instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. That's the good news. Bad news begins in verse 9. And if that nation against whom I have spoken, excuse me, and the instant I speak concerning the, a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. These are general statements, not about some specific prophecy, but a general principle God gave Jeremiah about his prophecies. What kind of prophecies are conditional? Any prophecy that hinges as a judgment or reward for wrongdoing or good doing is manifestly conditional on the continuation of the good or wrongdoing. You follow what we just read in Jeremiah? In 1858... Ellen White gave a prophecy considering the fact of a very good going process that was going on in the world right then. 
prior to some real messes in our church. When an angel said that of the people in this meeting, some are going to be food for worms. Well, that part sure happened. And some of them are going to be subject to the seven last plagues. It's not totally impossible that that's going to happen, but I really don't expect it to. Because there will be a special resurrection at some point prior to Christ's coming. I don't think that's going to happen, though. But, you know, I mean, that those people... Anyway, going on. And some of them would be translated without seeing death. Well, that part's not going to happen. They're all dead. Is Christ coming based on a calendar, or is it hinged upon the well-doing of his people? It's hinged upon two well-doings of his people. Getting the gospel to the entire world in a generation and reproducing the character of Jesus. We didn't do it. And at what instant the Lord spoke to have it done in a jiffy? We turned away from what we were doing well and it wasn't done in the jiffy. It's the same thing that happened on the way to Canaan when they said we're going to Canaan, but then they didn't go. I mean, they eventually got there, but the ones that were going didn't get there. You understand what I'm saying? Except two of them. I read one critic said it wasn't a conditional prophecy. That was arrogant. There was nothing in the prophecy that said it wasn't conditional. Jeremiah 18 said they're all conditional if they're based upon the right doing or wrong doing. Someone asked me to... I said I would do that later. All right. Um, Ellen White, just let me scan my audience. Okay. Ellen White, I wasn't looking for a particular person, I was looking for an age of person. And it wasn't the oldest people. I was looking for kids. Um, <clears throat> Ellen White wrote a, an article called Appeal to Mothers. That particular article was an attack on the vice that today we call masturbation. But in Ellen White's day, it was called by lots of things. And none of them were that. And some of them are easier to say, like secret vice. I think I'll use that one for the rest of this meeting. Ellen White said a number of things about secret vice that if you were to ask psychologists and physicians today, they would tell you that those things were ridiculous. She traced to that vile habit such things as well, I'll just get to the worst ones first. Insanity and death. And you know there are lots of things on the way to that, if you've ever read that appeal to mothers. If you were to ask physicians today, they would tell you that there's nothing harmful physically with that practice. I don't believe them for a minute. I was talking to Dr. Nedley about this a couple of years ago. And I, I asked Neil if he had any, you know, Neil Nedley does studies on all kinds of things. I, think, I thought maybe he had tackled this one. I thought I'd ask him about it. I asked him if he had any information about it. And what he said 
was that there's only been one clinical study done, like a double-blind study, on related even to this in the entire history of medicine. Up to two years ago when I asked him anyway. And if you know Neil, you know that he doesn't just make those kind of things up. He's one of those study-type people. It was done in the 19th century. It was done in insane asylums and was a study of the practice of secret vice and the continuation and the suffering of people that suffered from insanity. The conclusion was that it definitely contributed to their problems and made them worse and longer lasting. That was the study, that was the conclusion of the only scientific study ever done. Now you might be thinking, well surely if all of science has changed direction, there must have been some, some study that changed their direction. But no, it wasn't any study. It was just a change in presuppositions. Wait till we do some clinical studies and see what comes up. Now some people are thinking common sense that the increase in the practice of this has been dramatic. But we haven't seen a dramatic increase in insanity, so it just doesn't hold. You follow that kind of logic? It's not logical enough, because we are a heavily medicated society. And in fact, there has been a tremendous increase in bipolar disorder, and in, even in schizophrenia. A tremendous increase. But why aren't we seeing the increase as we look around? It's because... Yeah. And bipolar disorder, is it connected with suicide? I know physicians who say that it's a lethal disorder. Um, that that's just where it ends. If science does a study and eventually shows a connection between that immoral practice and an increase in guilt and oppression that eventually produces some of these psychotic problems, well, that would vindicate what Ellen White said. But in the absence of that study, there's been no other study to contradict it. So people who say that it's just ridiculous are just making it up and don't know what they're talking about. End of point. The White Estate also goes into the issue of, um, of zinc, the connection of zinc depletion and its relation to sanity. I don't know enough about it and don't go there because the other thing seems more simple and makes more sense to me. Europe. Some brother came up here and asked if it was true that the brethren in Europe are not in favor of the spirit of prophecy. It's a generality that is fair for certain parts of Western Europe. And the question he brought up was the why of it. It might be useful for you to know. I know some of you are Romanian. I know because her doll's here and she's Romanian. She doesn't want me to tell you that, so I take it back. I don't know who's Romanian around here. Well, anyway, if there's anyone here else that's Romanian, there was a time when Romania was under an iron curtain. And when that iron curtain fell, there were more Adventists in Romania than in the rest of Western Europe. Of course, it wasn't Western Europe, but in Western Europe put together. In Romania, they believed in the testimonies at that point. And in the rest of Western Europe, they didn't. How did it come to be that they didn't believe? That's a sad story, but there is something to it. Maybe it's worth a four-minute version for you. Conradi was a discouraged church leader, Louis Conradi, in the 1880s, early 1880s. 
He was thinking about giving up his position as an Adventist minister and giving up his confidence in the testimonies. Things just didn't make sense to him. He was all by himself out there in the European field. I mean, he had his people that he had trained and were under him, but he didn't have any peers out there. And he thought he would give Adventism another chance. He arranged to come to the 1888 General Conference to seek for help with his discouragement and his doubts about the testimonies. He came to Minneapolis, but instead of getting help, he found the brethren in general in the same quagmire of confusion and doubts that he had been suffering from while he was in Europe. It didn't help him. He went home and concluded that Ellen White was a false prophet. But the Sabbath was still the seventh day. And so he began teaching faith as he understood it. It didn't help him too much. When he came to the issue of World War I, just after Ellen White had died, he was willing to disfellowship the members who would not support the German war machine by bearing arms and working on Sabbath. You know, he didn't understand. And in fact, a number of years later, as soon as the pension was set in the Adventist church and he could retire with a set pension, the day, well, I don't know if it was the day, but it was at least the week, immediately upon retirement, Conradi resigned from the Seventh-day Adventist denomination as a member, not only as the director of the European division, and joined the Seventh-day Baptist and was in that denomination until his death. Western Europe was under his tutelage for more than 25 years. It seemed cadoodles. It was a lot more than 25 years. It was more than 35 years. That's why. And the areas that escaped from under his influence began to prosper and the rest of the areas are suffering as they are. Southeast Asia Division ended up having a later version in Ford. And you can almost count California as part of the Southeast Asia Division in that respect. Someone mentioned the Holy Kiss, making fun of Ellen White on the basis of gender abnormalities in the relations of early Adventist believers. That was a weird way to say the thought and it didn't come out right. Well, anyway, what I mean is, is that in some of the early Adventist movements, there were some uncouth things going on. People crawling around and barking and yelling and a lot of holy kissing and, and some other stuff that was bad. Ellen White did once write about the holy kiss in a positive way. But you don't need to conjecture that she got it from the fanatics that she had rebuked from day one that were into that other business. Because you know she was rebuking them from day one. That was her business. So on one of the anti-Elmet websites, they talk about this Damon trial, like it was her friend. She wrote against him and opposed him and opposed what he was doing and opposed it even the night that he got arrested. That's so silly. But... um. If you're going to accuse Ellen White for her one statement in a positive sense about the Holy Kiss, you have to understand that she's quoting from the Bible when she does it. I was in Puerto Rico last weekend and I saw a lot of holy kissing. I even received one of them. My wife was right beside me. Well, I didn't return it because I'm American. But in a lot of the world, there's a lot of holy kissing still going on and you know there's nothing bad about it. In America, it would be a different story in some places in some ways.
my point on the holy kiss. Earthquakes. Um, in Patriarchs and Prophets, in the chapter after the flood, Ellen White comes as close as she ever does to tectonic theory. She writes there some of the most interesting things, that after the flood, vast, vast fields of vegetation were buried, that these became coal and oil, that many of these are buried in subterranean places and are superheated by the heat that's down there, that they frequently ignite. And because of the action of the limestone and the water, that sometimes there are great explosions underground, and these sound like muffled thunder on the surface and cause volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. Have any of you ever read that statement? I think that's a fairly accurate description of what's there. And then after she died, people discovered tectonic theory. And in tectonic theory, we found out the earth has all these, you know, these shifting pieces, and when they run into each other, they can crumple up, and that's how you get like mountains. And if they're pulling apart, well, then lava comes up and fills the spot. And, and you've seen those pictures on National Geographic shows under the water. You can see it. It's so neat looking, right? There are many volcanoes and many earthquakes that are not associated with fault lines. Many fault lines that are not associated with tectonic plates. And the fact of the matter is that science really has not advanced as far as you might think in the business of understanding when and how these things come about. And it was in the journal Nature just two years ago, a study on the quantity of water that is in the mantle of the earth that is far below the surface, not liquid water, but hyperheated water in molten rock. And the study I read there concluded that probably more than one half of the water in the world is there. And the summary I'm going to answer is that science has not disproved anything in that statement. Science hasn't even got to the point of figuring out where the coal and the oil came from, and that's the first sentence. And you get beyond that and you have the rest of it. Don't tell me it's a contradiction to science. It's filling in stuff that we don't know. And don't say it's drawn from the tectonic thing, uh, from the geological theories of her day. It's not. That research has been done. It's a unique piece of literature. says, heaven, how? I don't know. Okay. Um, in 1890-something or other, <clears throat> Ellen White was in Europe, and A.T. Jones was in Michigan. He was going to preach in the Dime Tabernacle. He was pretty excited because the church was having some complications being run without the prophet handy. When the prophet is there, things get axed right away. They can go on for several weeks when the prophet is that distance away. Then he heard that a young lady named Anna was having visions. I'll tell you in my own life, I've met many people that have had visions. Maybe as an aside, I'll give you some caution in case any of you have visions. I don't mean to mock you either, if you do. 
visions and dreams most often come neither from God nor from the devil. Most often they come from our imagination and dreaming patterns. Can I talk about you for a minute, Heidi? Now listen, this is not making fun of my wife. She doesn't claim to have visions or anything special in her dreams. Can I tell what I want to say? Is it okay? My wife has really neat dreams. And in fact, if she was not as rational and wise as she is, the devil might try to convince her that her dreams had spiritual significance because she tends to think about spiritual things. And the great man Solomon said that dreams come through a multitude of business. I mean, you read that in, in the... Yeah, dreams come from a multitude of business. And I'll tell you, I can interpret her dreams. She'll tell me the picture she has, and I can tell her the things she's been thinking about because she talks about them the day before and dreams about them the night. If you would learn to not take your dreams so seriously, it would help preserve you from future problems. We just shouldn't. Most dreams are the product of our own imagination. Anna Geimeyer didn't have someone saying things like that to her. Her dad, when he heard the spiritual dreams, took quite a different position and thought that they were probably from heaven. And she began to share her testimonies. <clears throat> and he began to really promote them because there's nothing like having a daughter as a prophet in the Adventist church, especially if she's an obedient one. A.T. Jones bought into it, and in front of the Dime Tabernacle, he gave a sermon based on John chapter 10, where Jesus speaks about how my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, they know my voice. You read that? And he would read a statement from Ellen White and say, do you hear the voice? And the audience would recognize it and they'd say, we hear the voice, because they were used to interacting with A.T. Jones. And he'd read another one, do you hear the voice? And they'd say, we hear the voice. And then he'd play the trick on him. And he read something from Anna Geimeyer and said, do you hear the voice? And they said, we hear the voice. And that wasn't nice. But he did it anyway. And then he used it as evidence that if you are his sheep, then this must be a true prophet. That was tricky. You never should accept prophets like that. In fact, that's a different study, but the business of accepting prophets should be a long, drawn-out, slow process. And if you draw it out long enough, you won't end up accepting them. Um, I mean false ones, which is our, the only kind that have been available in the last hundred years. Um, oh yeah, the story. So A.T. Jones, he was done with his sermon. The next day he went to the post office. This is the most famous part of the story. And he had a letter from Ellen White. And he opened it up in the presence of another Adventist that was there. I think some of you have heard the story. It's sort of famous. And in the letter, Ellen White told him something like, how did you dare to stand up in front of the people and read the writings of Anna Geimeyer as if they were inspired by the Spirit? That story at least proves that Ellen White is either inspired of God or of the devil. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? You just can't use the blow to the head 
medical hallucinations bit with that story. So A.T. Jones knew which way to go and he accepted it. And the next week he got in front of the Dime Tabernacle and he shared with the people, he said, last week I told you that um, this lady was a prophet and I was wrong. Now I'm right. And he sat down. And that was manly. I give him credit for that. What am I talking about? Oh yeah, dreams and visions. That's what I'm talking about. When you get them, not to pay any attention to them. Um, how do you evaluate a true prophet? If I could give you just a few points. As Adventists, we study the test of a prophet. You ought to review those things. But even if someone passes all the initial tests of a prophet, because I'll tell you, if one of you had a dream right here, and you stood up, and you told us that we should all stop telling lies, and you sat down, it might be hard to pin you with one of the tests of a prophet. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? The devil can get away with even making false prophets look good for at least some period of time. Second Selected Messages. There's 100 pages about how to tell them. You'll want to read it. You want to read about the Mackin case in particular? The Mackins were interesting people. They looked like good, holy people. Had a lot of good fruit in their ministry. Plus, they spoke in tongues. You should read it. Next point. Uh-oh. How true? Oh, how to tell when they're true. Okay, we dealt with that. We'll talk about the shut door for a minute. It is surprising to me that this objection gets as much press. And I think our church has handled it too... We've given too much to the opposition in this case. Um, in summary, Ellen White talked about how she had believed in a shut door prior to the time that she was a prophet. That is, that there was an ark and there was a door in the ark and when the angel shut the door, there was a period of time when the rain had not begun to fall, but if you weren't in the ark, you weren't going to get in. You follow the story from Genesis? The Adventists referred to that as the shut door. They concluded from that and several other passages that there would be a, a period of time prior to Christ's coming when there wouldn't be any more salvation going on. I still buy into that doctrine. Do you all buy into that doctrine? Yeah, I do. That was the shut door. Then in 1844, on October 22, when Jesus didn't come back, many concluded that this is what had happened. That October 22 was a, the fulfillment of this close of probation. Ellen White also believed this general thing. Is it normal in the Bible for prophets sometimes to believe false ideas? All of the apostles believed false ideas for some time. In fact, a number of prophets believed false ideas and had to be corrected. Nathan even came to David and told him something and had to come back the next day and say, whoops, I goofed, and tell him the right thing. Remember that? This is before Ellen White had had a vision. She was Ellen Harmon at this time, before Miss Harmon had had a vision. Her vision used the figure of a shut door. Now, she had a preconceived opinion about a shut door, and the vision did not explain very much about that shut door. Does prophecy talk about a shut door in 
connection between the beginning of the most holy place ministry and the close of the holy place ministry. There is. The Old Testament refers to the hangings in the front as doors. And Revelation 3 talks about the closing of the one door and the opening of another door. There was certainly a door that closed and a door that opened. Ellen White saw that in vision, just like John had seen it in vision. She didn't understand it, but I'll tell you, there's not one statement by Ellen White that teaches a falsehood on the issue of this topic. Not one written statement that says that there is no more salvation for sinners after October 22, 1844. Sure, she misunderstood it, but she never taught it wrong. That's the ironic thing. Then, when she eventually did explain what happened is that one brother eventually taught it right, and as soon as a man, Brother Arnold, was teaching it right, she was given instruction to tell her, brother, her husband James to study with that man. And they did study. Element was responsible for pulling our church out of this shut-door idea by encouraging the salvation or the conversion of Mr. Wagner. That's the father of the famous Jones and Wagner, even though he had not been part of the Advent movement. Let me just summarize these shut-door issues, and I'll leave it for you to go back and find it. Point one, Ellen White never taught error on this point, never taught that there was no more salvation for sinners. Point two, she did teach that there was a shut-door, and many of the Adventist pioneers, including her husband, misunderstood that statement. Well, that's normal for the way prophets get understood, and sometimes even how they understand themselves. You remember what Peter said? He said the prophets searched their own testimonies to see the spirit that spoke through them, what in the world it was talking about. Have you read that in 1 Peter? The man didn't understand it, neither did she, but she taught the right thing. Then when someone taught the right thing, she was used to direct the brethren to that doctrine. And she taught the right thing. And so be it. There's no objection in the shut door. I think I'm almost through the list. This is something like house. Have or house or horse. I don't know what it says. Um, does anyone else have an objection that you'd like to hear an answer to here in public? You'd just like to raise your hand and ask a question. Yes, sir. It's hypocrisy is that word. Okay. Thank you. you. You helped me. It's just a very ugly hypocrisy right there. That's exactly what, that's what's going on. Let me deal with those because there are several hypocrisies altogether. The basic ones that are brought up are jewelry, diet, and photographs. Those are the main ones I know about accusations against Ellen White. Um, let me start backwards with photographs, the one you didn't bring up. You know, Ellen White did write about photography, the waste of money on it, and if I could just try to encourage reform among people I don't even know, I would dare guess that in this audience of, I don't know what there are, maybe 150 people here or so, that we probably have 150 digital cameras, probably 95 digital camcorders, probably use up, I reckon as a body in the last two years, we have spent fifty, sixty thousand dollars on pictures. 
which would hire a Bible worker to work for a thousand months in many parts of this world. And the benefit that has come from our pictures during that period of time is not equivalent to a thousand months of Bible work. And I'll just leave it for you to consider that if you really do need to keep updating your cameras. But that's not what I'm talking about, right? So I'm going to go on. So she wrote something about this, and then she ended up getting a number of pictures taken of herself. And you know, no one ever called her on it. She called herself and made a public apology and admitted she had been wrong. I give her five points for that. You follow what I'm saying? Can prophets sin? In fact, it's hard to find prophets in the Bible that didn't do that. It's hard. And not all of them even went and made it right. So, points. What about the eating meat? There is a lot of dishonesty in the meat-eating issue, but let me point out some things that are, that are honest. Ellen White did eat meat a number of times after she said that the time for eating meat for us was past. Before you get too nervous, Ellen White never did say, and I don't even believe today, that the time had come in her life when you could say that there's never a time for eating meat. That time, I have not found a situation in my own life in the last 20 years where there was a good time for eating meat. And that's traveling all around the world. But I can imagine, I can picture being in a situation in Alaska where I grew up, in the woods, in the winter, by myself, where I can see myself, <laughs> I couldn't kill a moose if I tried, but if I could, I might eat it because there's just not enough edible things up there that I know about. When did Ellen White, when was she accused of eating the meat? The biggest information, eating squirrel and duck, but she never ate the squirrel as far as I can tell in any sense. But the accusations came from a trip, a vacation she made into the Rocky Mountains. I'd like to copy her vacation. She was there for a month. I wouldn't copy all of it because she broke her leg while she was there and there wasn't like a hospital nearby. But while they were going in this vacation into the Rocky Mountains, they took enough provisions to get all the way to where they could get more provisions. This was a good idea. But while they were going, some things happened to slow them down. You can't necessarily know that's going to happen, right? But they had some extra provisions. But then something else happened. They met a troop of people coming who had made poor provisions and were starving. They didn't know how to hunt or fish, and they had been out of food for quite some time. And the whites group gave them a large portion of their supplies. Now the whites were inadequately supplied to make it to where they were going. They did, however, have rifles and some ability. And Willie did go hunting duck and had some success. And they did eat some. And this is not the Rocky Mountains of today where there's our corner marts. There's nothing inconsistent with anything Elma ever wrote about eating meat when it's the most helpful stuff you can get. 
Do you all follow what I'm saying? There's nothing about it. What about eating oysters? Our typical church response, not that there's any record that she actually ate oysters except for by a proverbial liar that went insane named Fanny Bolton. But putting that significant issue aside, because Fanny Bolton, if you'll read her story, she was a mess. She publicly several times admitted that what she had told was a bunch of lies and then started telling them again. And she did end up insane. Aside from her, the only thing we have to indicate that Ellen White ever ate oysters was a letter she wrote asking for some. Our typical church response is that our church at that point did not have any way of, we had not evaluated oysters in light of clean and unclean foods. And that sounds kind of silly to us because it's one of the grossest of foods. Um, I have read where Ellen White talked in one paragraph about like two sentences like, I've not eaten any meat for a long time, we're eating fish, blah, blah, blah. Is she the only one in the world that thinks like that? I tell you, it's your, it's your typical neighbors in a lot of places where you come from. I've experienced traveling. You can't just say I'm a vegetarian. You've got to also clarify you don't eat squiggly, fishy things. Um, I've heard another reply to that, and I don't have any tool in my hand to evaluate this, whether it's true or false, so I just give it to you, and if you ever find a tool, do it. And that is that she was writing to a relative, and there, there was a vegetable that had a folk name of oyster. The vegetables in many places have folk names. I found that when I travel, it's kind of odd trying to find the names of many things. It sounds to me believable, but I don't know if it's the truth. I do know what Ellen White had to say about the general topic of judging her by what she ate. She said she wouldn't give a bean for that kind of religion. She indicated that if you want to know what's right, you're going to have to look at what's written. You won't find in prophets the ideal practice of what prophets write. So I think I found in her a pretty good ideal of what she wrote. The jewelry issue is a different issue. It's kind of funny. Where, is, where did I find this? It's at that ellenwhite.org website. They have an actual photograph there of her with a sister of hers. And, you blow, and they blow up to major magnification so you can see what they call a gold or silver chain and a, a piece of jewelry right here. I never know how to pronounce that B-R-O-C-H-E word. Well, you all know how to pronounce it. Okay, so yeah, that one. Had one of those. I looked at the picture and I'm going to tell you, I don't know how you can tell that the little piece of string right here is gold or silver from a black and white photograph expanded that many times and it was grainy to begin with. But I do know what I learned some time ago, that Ellen White had a twin sister. How many of you knew that Ellen White had a twin sister? She had a twin sister and her twin sister wore jewelry. And there were a number of pictures taken of her twin sister and several of these have gotten to circulation as pictures of Ellen White. But I've never found anyone that was close to her that didn't turn to be an enemy of hers that ever brought up this issue. And I've never seen a picture of her with Adventist people that you recognize as Adventist people where she was wearing any jewelry at all. So frankly, I think those pictures aren't of her, but they're of her twin sister. Simply stated enough. Any other questions or objections you'd like to bring up? Yeah. 
Okay, one of the anti-Ellen websites makes a big deal about this, and that is that Ellen White saw New Jerusalem come down to earth, but more than that, there's Jerusalem in heaven. I mean, Jerusalem, I mean the temple. That's actually what it makes. It's actually the temple's the issue in those things. There's a temple in heaven. Now, what does Revelation say? I saw no temple. I think it's one of the weakest of arguments you could possibly make from the book of Revelation. Because it's at the end of Revelation that John is surprised because he sees no temple. Because what does he see everywhere else in the book of Revelation? A temple. What's very apparent is that there is a temple and then there isn't one. Well, Ellen White saw when there was one. She also saw later when there wasn't. It's just so silly to make an objection out of it. End of objection. Um, the temple is for salvation. When salvation is over, ditto the temple. Yeah. Is that in, are you the one, is that in this thing? I'm going to hand it to you to find it, because I've never seen anything like that in all my life. I don't think Ellen White ever told anyone to get baptized now or you're going to hell. In fact, our evangelists do that, and it's shame on them. Um, it's just not, people ought to be counting the cost. Is there any other while he's looking? Yeah. Um, I guarantee there's going to be a bunch of them. But do you mean is there going to be another one that has like that standard central position in the denomination? That's too speculative a question for trying to answer biblically. But there are some things I could say biblically about that. I don't see why there needs to be. We have plenty of information. And God's way typically is if you're despising what you have originally is not to give you a whole bunch more of it. But if he chooses to bless us that way anyway, I'll be happy. But if he does it tomorrow, you better not believe him or her for quite some time. Because he sure warned you against that. The Bible has many more warnings against receiving a false prophet than it does against rejecting a true one. Take your time. Yeah. Let me respond to that just a little bit. If the testimony was about food on the table versus it, that would be legitimate. We're quite prosperous today, and probably no one here is, is spending money and suffering on the tables. But really, in both cases, the statement was contrast of liberality to missions. And um, yeah, not that I have a particular burden, but check it, how much money is being spent on these things. Uh-huh. I 
Let me respond to this just a little bit. It really isn't true that we've become better since then. We do have running water, I'll give you that. But we haven't become any better. Um, in fact, our percentage of giving to missions has gone deplorably down since that point. And the Bible does have a lot to say about attention to self. We do give a whole lot of attention to self. If we will look in those statements, the things that she says, for example, about sports and about music and about entertainment, I think you will be amazed, not at her knowledge, but at how much God foresaw it was coming in our day and really wrote for us really incredibly well. In fact, the issue of bicycles, I, you all ought to go back and read that. I don't think you'll find anything that would condemn you, even if you read it plainly just as it is for having a bicycle. I know you wouldn't. But you would find some things that might condemn some other things you're doing. Or might condemn your $2,000 bicycle. All right. Let me pause for just a moment. Okay, I can respond to this having looked at it that much. Have any of you ever heard of the Camden vision? It's familiar to what the brother just brought up to me here. There are a number of statements that come from dubious sources in the life of Ellen White, people who knew her. Like one woman who said that Ellen White said that Christ would come next June, like in 1848 or something. And she signed her name in affidavit that she heard Ellen White say it. Let me show you something about that in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're looking at verse 8. It says, And why not say... Let us do evil that good may come. As some, we are slanderously reported, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. Were there people who accused Paul of saying, let's do good that evil, let's do evil that good may come? There were people who accused Paul of saying that. And were there others who said, yeah, I heard him say it with my own ears? There were others that affirmed that they had heard it. Well, you know, it didn't matter that there were people who affirmed it. He never said it. The closest he came is he said that where iniquity abounds, grace does much more abound. But he sure didn't say that that's a reason to go make sin abound. There are many things reported that Ellen White said, and here's one of them. It's a story from a trial of Israel Daman. If everything in that trial is reported is accurate, 
Ellen White did some strange things. I wouldn't believe it for a minute. It's to totally out of character of everything she's read, and I've read a lot of what she's written. That's why, when you said it, why my first reaction was, she didn't say that. It's just out of character. Yeah. It's a rumor. Anything else? Yes. Oh, thank you for asking. It certainly wasn't for writing what she wrote. It's for what she did. She wrote what she did about pictures over the course of a number of years. And in the midst, quite a ways between two of those experiences, she did what a lot of ladies get into doing today. Check it out, ladies, before you jump on me. Okay. Um, yeah, and she was sorry. Yes, sir. Uriah Smith brought up this question, and he was quite certain that you need to come up with a good solution to this. Ellen White's response to him makes up a large share of the 1888 materials. Not like 40%, but you know, like a good third of a percent. You know, it's many pages in there written to him on this topic. The summary is that God is not out to confuse us and doesn't mix together inspired and uninspired, uninspired materials that prophets can be relied upon. They're trustworthy. And I really have not found in careful reading that prophets get dated. You can still read Paul today, and it's good stuff. Ditto Ellen White. I think our official take on it is an authoritative and continuing source of inspiration. Yeah, that's the truth. You can't talk about levels of inspiration because as soon as you do, you have to figure out what is your basis for determining which stuff gets to the high level and which gets to the low level. And that's going to have to be you. And what's going to get the low level is the stuff that in your life ought to have gotten the high level and you're going to be messed up. Yes, sir. We talked about this some last night. I think you were here. About the reason we need a lesser light. What did Ephesians 4 say? To save us from the cunning craftiness of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. All right. You've been a very good audience sitting here. Yes. I'm saying that it's so obvious when you read it that you wouldn't ask the question. That if you're reading something that says something like this, um, 
Dear Willie, the time has come when we ought to be turning away from our habits of thinking about self. You know you're on to a testimony. If it says, Dear Willie, I wish that we hadn't painted the house blue. You're on to a personal letter. And that by the habit and careful habit of Ellen White, they're not confusing. That's what I'm saying. She specifically addressed the issue of personal letters, that God spoke through her in personal letters um, many times, that she was careful not to write. And in fact, if you'd ask her a question that she didn't have an answer on, her answer would be, Mum is the word, because she was instructed that people would take what she said and, yeah, quoted as inspired. Yeah. I don't mind it. I keep gabbing. Go ahead. Call her the messenger of the Lord instead? Yeah. Technically, we ought to maybe back up a little bit and say more than a prophet. Amen. That's what she says in that statement. More than a prophet. The term more than a prophet definitely includes a prophet. And before you take issue with people saying she was a prophet, remember that in the very statement she says she didn't have any issue with people that call her a prophet. Did you all follow what I just said? She specifically said she did not take issue with people who called her a prophet. But she used a different word for herself that involved more than that of a prophet. And that was messenger of the Lord. Yeah, that's fair to do. She was a messenger of the Lord. That term would apply to John the Baptist, for example. Someone who was called to do a special work preparing the people for the coming of Christ. Something more than a prophet. Not less accurate, more important. There are two statements you could be referring to. One of them is in the book Evangelism that says, do not bring my... I'm going to get it right. Do not bring Sister White to the front. That's a slight paraphrase of it. Um, the statement is not about reading what she wrote up front. It's about making her... Am I whistling again? It was working really good, guys. All right, there we go. Um, not to bring these things to the front. I mean, not to make her the alternative to Bible study. I don't think that's what you're referring to. She wrote to the 1901 General Conference. I think this is what you're referring to. When there was quite an issue of people, the very people that were refusing her counsels on how to organize the church and especially about kingly authority in the church, these men were refusing her counsel and yet were daring to quote her testimonies. This was offensive to her. And she indicated then that don't you quote Sister White again until you can learn how to obey the Bible. Because Acts 15 describes church polity, that we ought to be organized in a representative way, and this business of a top-down organization was anti-biblical. Yeah, that's true. The key phrase is until. 
It, Jesus said the same thing. Don't go trying to pull out the moat in your brother's eye if you have a beam in your own. Yes. Okay. We, last night we dealt with this lesser light issue. It's, she was speaking, and the only time she ever used the term lesser light about herself, that she only did it once, was talking about how we need to distribute her books as call porters, that it wasn't a contrast with the Bible. But there are other places, like Third Selected Messages, page 33, where she does make it very clear, God does not want us using Ellen White as a substitute for Bible study. Specifically, when God wanted to correct us on the issue of what time we start and end Sabbath, he didn't do it through Ellen White. When he wanted to correct us on a number of other issues, he let it, left it for us to say the Bible. And um, you ought to be Bible scholars. I didn't talk about it Friday night, but it was on your handouts. This argument that Ellen White gets more attention than the Bible is bogus. She only gets more lip service. If people were actually reading, you would find that they would become Bible scholars par excellence. Yeah, that is the truth. Like a resource for answering these. Um, the brother... There are a number of websites devoted to answering these objections. Google doesn't find them as well as it finds the bad ones because people don't go to them as often. And Google works by that kind of number crunching way. Um, also, a number of books have been written. The White Estate has material on most of these objections that is fairly decent. Ellen White and Her Critics by F.D. Nicole is pretty good. Messenger of the Lord by Herbert Douglas answers many of these objections. Um, Bob Pickle has his own website. You can find that. Bob Pickle, Google him, you'll find it. Um, yeah, you can find websites. However, as a caveat, it takes much less time to make a lie than it does to answer it. I mean, you can just make a fib and it can require a ton of research in archives to find out that it's just a lie. So you can't expect God's people to keep up with the business. But we can stay reasonably behind and the ones that were made a long time ago, which are the most significant to the accusations, have been well answered. Anything else? Yeah. Maranathamedia.com.au. Okay, so apparently Maranathamedia.com.australia, AU. You can find F.D. Nichols' book without paying a dime for it. At least I suppose it's free if it's online, I suppose it is. I'm willing to let you go because you've been sitting a long time, but you have something else? Yeah. I won't be offended. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm.
that's not really an objection about her writings because even if she had died of gluttony the Bible would still support her in saying that you shouldn't be a glutton um, those many of you are probably in medical school here and you probably know that if you get overfed as a baby the number of fat cells that you have in your body is significantly more than the average Joe and that for you to maintain a low body weight is more difficult Ellen White did have a fairly sedentary calling, but did she make earnest efforts to keep herself out in the open air and gain exercise? Even when she was very weak and sick, she tried her best to get exercise in the garden, to get out there, to get activity. She wasn't running five miles a day, but she was close to death much of her life. And if any of you are close to death and bedridden for much of your life and your occupation is writing, you probably also won't look as skinny as me. Um, yeah, that would be my answer. It's true that you don't see many pictures of very skinny people back from that time. Uh huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Brother Gizmo, I got it, man. I've met a man who was a solemn fanatic who like would fast for like weeks at a time and eat almost nothing and he looked normal size but he weighed almost nothing he was just wearing many layers of clothes to conserve the little bit of body heat he had that's not really relevant but it was interesting Anyone else have any issue might want to see if I have any information on it? Yes. Yes. But not inconsistently. Um, on that camping trip, they were hunting duck. And for a guy traveling with them, Willie shot a squirrel, cooked it. Not her. Neighbors traveling. I wouldn't recommend eating squirrel. 
Okay, I don't totally understand the big picture you're asking, but as far as I know that when the Reformed Adventist Church split from us in the 1920s, just prior to that, it was still plausible that when the church reached the 144,000 mark that we'd all go to heaven, because we were still talking about that in the early 1900s. So it must be that by 1920, we did not have more than 140,000 members. But really, I don't know how many we had, when and where. I might have known it. It sure didn't stick. I'm sure that wasn't your question. I didn't get your question. Some objections come from people who don't want to believe. Most originate there. Many of them do confuse people who do want to believe. Because if you go to some of these websites and just read what's there, you can just be blown over by the volume of material and figure, I've been bamboozled. Well, it's because you're being bamboozled currently as you're reading it. But yeah, that can happen. But I'm glad you mentioned, yeah, that's where they start. People don't want to believe it. Okay, I've done my best. I've given you some information. I think you can go searching and find good sources. No one brought up any one of those hairy questions. I was afraid they did, except for one man, and I told him to keep quiet and we'd go to it later. So you never heard it. All the rest we've dealt with, and I'm happy about that. That's good. Um, why don't we stand for a closing prayer, and we'll be finished. Our Father in heaven, I want to affirm in front of those here that the testimonies have had so many paragraphs that described my own struggles with sin. I ask that you would use them for the purposes that you intended, that you would make ready a, a group from this body here that would be ready for your coming. Guide us into all truth by your Spirit. And again, I ask that you would strengthen the impact of whatever I've shared that is true, that you would weaken the influence of anything I've shared that misrepresents the truth. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.